0: A quick content warning, there is swearing, references to sex and sex work in this episode, as well as a graphic description of a murder. Please take care of yourselves, and thank you so much for being here. It was December 2017. My brother Andrew was in New York visiting me for Christmas. And we were having a pizza dinner at a restaurant on a snowy December day in my then-neighborhood of bed Brooklyn, when the conversation meandered over to the dietary component of religion. How religions make a point of having things one can and cannot consume, or rules around when or how much one consumes, like fasting. And off the top of our heads, We couldn't name any religions that didn't involve themselves, in some way or another, in what or how their adherents ate. And then I made a joke about eating only beets on the fourth Tuesday of every month as a foundational dietary principle for my upstart religion, beetism. That is, B-E-E-T. The beautiful magenta root vegetable that is the star of the best stew in the whole wide world? Borscht. And then Andrew, clever heretic that he is, <laughs> broke away from my new religion with his unwavering belief that beets should only be eaten on the third Thursday of the month. So, thanks to my brother, within seconds, Beatism, so pure, so true, had a schism. And the enmity between the Fourth Tuesday Beatist Orthodoxy and the Third Thursday Beatist offshoot, pun intended, remains incendiary and controversial to this very day.
1: Dammit, Christine. Third Thursday beat are the one true faith.
0: One of the many fascinating things about the T period of Byzantium 450 to 570 AD. is that during Theodora and Justinian's lifetimes, Christianity, at least as the official state religion, was still fairly young. Their rule marks both an end to the old ways and a cementing of the new ones. The last vestiges of paganism and neoplatonic philosophy, which made up the core of elite belief in antiquity, are pretty much stamped out, as are some early Christian beliefs, which are deemed heretical. And the empire's Jews and Samaritans don't fare much better. Byzantine life grows into one where intellectualism no longer really exists beyond a Christian framework, and the theological underpinnings and praxis of Roman Catholicism are still being ironed out. Theodora and Justinian are essentially driving the minivan on the highway to the Christendom of the Middle Ages, where there will not be any exits for some time. But perhaps even less known is that long before Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation with his 95 Theses, and King Henry VIII formed the Church of England so he could wed Anne Boleyn, T&J's Christianity had them beat. Christianity Deeply divided into two warring camps you've probably never heard of, but that shook the Byzantine Empire to its Christian core. That is, the division between the Monophysites and the Chalcedonians. The Monophysites and the Chalcedonians. And to add some wild spin to this story, Theodora was a fervent Monophysite, and Justinian a staunch Chalcedonian. They were a house divided people, or maybe not. Procopius tells us in The Secret History, that he thinks it was all a ruse. Intriguingly, Theodora wasn't born into her monophysite beliefs. She adopted them years before she and Justinian would link up and become a couple. How was Theodora's Christianity different from what Chalcedonians like Justinian, her future husband, believed? And how might it have served them to have opposing ones? In what ways can the Byzantine Christianity of the TNJ era help us understand about the often ornate and puzzling tree of Christianity as it stands today? I'm Christine Laskowski, and this is TNJ a limited podcast series devoted to 6th century Byzantium and the greatest recorded love story on earth, that between Empress Theodora and her husband, the Emperor Justinian. This is Episode 2, One Iota.
2: Justinian
0: once we hit the t and era, 450 to the expression of Christianity, at least to me, has this undeniable masochistic quality. And I'm talking not just in the embrace of the Cenobitic lifestyle, One, One David Rabnick point. but the extremes to which Cenobites would take that lifestyle it was not altogether unusual for men to voluntarily castrate themselves upon becoming a monk, the rationale being they'd be less likely to engage in sexual activity. There were also what were known as the Sleepless Monks, self-appointed guardians of Chalcedonian Orthodoxy, who, as the name implies, took shifts endlessly praising God in their monastery, on the eastern shore of the Bosporus. My favorite by far, however, were the stylite monks. Now, stylite monks would climb to the top of a large standalone column or pillar and stay there for like a decade. Saint Simeon the stylite monk was so intense that he was kicked out of a monastery and then climbed to the top of a 50 foot tall column and lived there for 37 years. Early Christians were also obsessed with the nature of Christ. I mean, obsessed. Was Jesus God, or was he a man? How could he be God if his dad was also God? Was he both God and man simultaneously? Or was he born man, and then became God? There were many cracks that we'll get into, but the first big crack in Christianity Christianity. can be traced back to an inflection point in the year 325 AD. Exactly five years before Emperor Constantine would officially inaugurate Constantinople as a Roman capital, Constantine held an ecumenical council. The very first of its kind in the town of Nicaea, located today in the Turkish city of Iznak. Talk just so I can make sure it's getting hello, both hello. of us.
1: Hello, can you hear me?
0: That's my little brother, Andrew, right. beatist apostate and high school physics teacher. All right, we are going to try and recite purely from memory mm-hmm. the Nicene Creed.
1: Oh, the Nicene Creed? Yeah. Oh, okay. Are
0: you ready? We believe in one God, the the Father, the Almighty, Almighty, maker maker of of heaven heaven and earth, earth, of all all that is
1: seen and unseen.
0: One in being with the Father, through him him all things things are
1: made. uh, For for (laughs) for (laughs) us men and for our salvation. No, 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 I I think it's
0: like for all that is seen and unseen. For all that is seen and (laughs) unseen. The Nicene Creed was a recitation of belief from our childhood attending Catholic Mass each Sunday, or actually if I'm being completely transparent, five o'clock Mass on Saturday. It became so rote, though, I never really thought about what the Nicene Creed was actually saying, or why the Catholic Church saw the need for it in the first place. Last episode, we left Theodora in Constantinople on the verge of a life-altering decision. She was then in her late teens or early 20s, already a very popular actor and comedian, and the young mother to a young daughter. But at that particular juncture in Theodora's life, she'd masterminded an exit, not only from the city, but from her theatrical life. She was going to link up with a powerful man who was not Justinian. So who was he? He was Hesebalus from Tyre and according to the secret history, Theodora had signed on to be his live-in mistress. We know very little about Hesebalus other than what Procopius says about him, which is that Hezzebulus had just been appointed governor of Pentapolis, which sounds made up, but was a real Roman territory in what is now Libya. Theodora agreed to accompany him across the Mediterranean to his new post. Theodora, by attaching herself to Hezzebulus in this way, was giving herself a very strategic, albeit non-prescriptive, out. Remember, theatrical people, the useless. It was also very risky, as she soon learned. Here's Procopius.
1: Serving him in the most shameful capacity, she gave some offense to the man and was driven thence with all speed. Consequently, it came about that she was at a loss for the necessities of life, which she proceeded to provide in her usual way, putting her body to work at its unlawful traffic.
0: So they get to Pentapolis, and something happens, we don't know what, but Hezzebulus, in the dickest of dick moves, casts Theodora out, on the other side of the world without any fucking money. And Theodora, being an adamantine boss bee,
1: One. David point.
0: relies on sex work to get herself out of this jam, earning the money she needs to get herself east and then home. Her first major stop was… you guessed it. We're going to hear more about Theodora's time in Alexandria later in the episode, but for now, What's important about Alexandria is something I discussed back in Episode 1, Bread and Circuses. Alexandria was where the Egyptian grain that fed Constantinople shipped out from. So Alexandria was not really messed with too much for that reason. But what that in turn allowed was for certain trends and beliefs to gain hold in Alexandria and spread, in a way, that doesn't really happen anywhere else in the empire. And it was in Alexandria in the 320s Oh, Alexandria, that wild, wild wolf. that a priest named Arius preached something different. That Christ the Son was subordinate to God the Father. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that Arius and his followers believed that Jesus Christ was lesser. God the Father had existed since time immemorial and was therefore eternal. Since his son, Jesus, was created at birth, Jesus, according to Arius' logic, was not co-eternal with the Father. Arius and his adherents also rejected the conventions surrounding the Holy Trinity. That is, Arians believed that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, or Ghost, depending on how you vibe, were different entities and possessed godliness in descending order. One pretty cool thing about Arius is that he was also a bit of a proto pop star. Arius crafted his teachings into these really catchy songs, which did not hurt the spread and popularization of his message among the ordinary folks at all. Travelers evidently sang them on the roads, workers and sailors crooned and shared them in the dockyards. As historian James Allen Evans put it, Arius brought the fascination of theological controversy, to the street. Sadly, none of these songs are extant, but suffice it to say Arius' message was one that Emperor Constantine and many others were not down with, which is another way of saying it probably became too popular too fast. Arius was wrestling control of the narrative with his theological earworms. So Constantine did what any boss would do. He called a meeting. A council of bishops from throughout the empire convened at Nicaea in 325 AD to settle the Arianism question problem, and they settled it by declaring it heretical. As in, nope, God and Christ are of the same nature, and if you're not okay with that, well, bye bye In the Vatican II version of the Nicene Creed that my brother and I grew up with, and that we had to look up so as to get it right. Christ's nature is defined as one in being with the Father. father. One One in being being with the Father. father. But that didn't mean Arianism was over. Arianism, A-R-I-A-N-I-S-M, among the barbarian tribes of the European frontier, among them, Arianism took off. So when I say that the Chalcedonian and Monophysite split of the T and (laughs) J era 50 to 570 AD Royaled the empire? That's exactly what I mean. Within the empire, that was the division. But outside the empire, different story. And Arianism wasn't the only one pushed out, although it was the first, and by far, the most consequential. The reason Arian Christianity became such a hit among the barbarian tribes of Europe can be traced not solely to Arius' being the theological ludicrous of late antiquity, but rather to a 4th century man whose name actually does sound like a heavy metal band. His name was Little Wolf, or Vufila in Gothic.
2: Vufilla! Vufilla!
0: Wufila was an Aryan missionary who began proselytizing in Gothic settlements in what is today northern Bulgaria. Bulgaria
2: was the area.
0: He and his team of missionaries, as missionaries are wont to do, decided to create a Gothic alphabet so they could make a Gothic Bible. And using some Greek letters, a couple of Latin letter forms, and a handful of tribal runes, the Goths had a new, written language all their own. And thanks to it, because Gothic is a Germanic language, and so is English, we actually know a few Gothic words. The Gothic word for entryway, door. And who guarded it? Well, that was a doorwarda. Or doorwarden. Door day, Wulfila's Gothic Bible remains the oldest text of any Germanic language. However, very little Gothic text survives. Most of it lives in a 6th century Bible known as the Codex Argenteus, or Silver Bible, which takes its name from the expensive silver ink used on its super fancy purple parchment. Say that five times fast. The manuscript contains part of Wulfila's 4th century translation of the Bible into Gothic, and was probably written for the Ostrogothic King Theodoric the Great, who we'll learn more about in the next episode. In any case, if you are ever in Uppsala, Sweden, go and check it out! Wulfila and his group of Aryan missionaries, scholar, collaborators, is ultimately the reason why, by the 5th century AD, Barbarians and Aryans were synonymous with one another. At least in the western provinces of the empire, where they had begun to settle. Various Germanic peoples on the move in Central and Eastern Europe, including the most formidable tribes like the Vandals, the Swavy, and the Burgundians, they too became Aryan Christians because they picked up the faith from the Goths. It was only the Franks. Sneaky fucking Franks. It was only the Franks who weren't Aryan and who entered Gaul, it's mainly France, directly from their homeland in what is now the Netherlands and Belgium. However, the Franks were the lone barbarians who, when they embraced Christianity, they embraced the Nicene faith, i.e. Catholicism. But that didn't mean Catholicism post-Council of Nicaea was a cut-and-dried thing, oh no! And that's because, at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, there was a letter, a single letter of the Greek alphabet, that had been planted into a word like a stick of dynamite and blown the whole thing up. It all began, really, and ironically, with the smallest of the Greek letters, the iota, which looks like a lowercase i. When Emperor Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, it was to settle the Arianism question problem, which really boiled down to whether Jesus and God were made of the same substance, in Greek, homos, or of a similar substance, in Greek, homoios, with that little iota stashed right in there. The contention around Christ's sameness, or similarness, to God originated from a small section of the New Testament, more specifically, in the first chapter of the Gospel according to John.
1: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God.
0: What we tend to translate into English as the word was in Greek called logos, and logos has nuances of meaning that English translations just can't convey. It was the divine yet indefinable element of Godhead, and in flesh. The Godhead see, it's see, it's always a part of the song where I'm like. Eh. In the 14th verse of the Gospel of John, it continues. And the word Logos was made
1: flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth.
0: This is what all the fuss was about. Jesus was the Logos, made flesh, but to what extent? Like, how much Logos are we talking here? The Council of Nicaea in 325 decided Christ had a homos amount of logos, and that the homoios or team folks like Arius and the barbarians who would go on to adopt his beliefs, they were all heretics. But spoiler alert, it did not end there. Byzantine Christians kept going over this, and like a scab, its emperors would not stop picking at it via ecumenical councils and decrees whose aim was to settle the matter of Christ's nature once and for all, only to create more dissension, splits, acrimony, blackmail, and persecution. There was the ecumenical council of Constantinople in 381, which declared another upstart, Apollinarianism, heretical. And then there was the First Council of Ephesus in 431, which led to the ouster of Nestorius and Nestorian Christianity to Persia and as far east as China. Now, the Nestorians... The Nestorians had the Patriarch of Alexandria to thank for their excommunication, and the patriarch of Alexandria at the time was a real piece of work named Cyril. And according to Byzantine historian James Allen Evans, Cyril hated pagans, Jews, and heretics more or less in that order of intensity. Another nutso detail about Cyril is that he had gangs of hospital orderlies who also doubled as thugs ready at his disposal. So when he would launch into verbal tirades against Alexandria's Jews, it led to violent skirmishes. The Jews fought back, the Christians retaliated by breaking into and robbing Jewish shops and homes. It was all very bad. And then it got worse. Cyril demanded, and again, we're talking about the top priest here, that the city's entire Jewish population which was substantial, be expelled in 414 AD. Now, there were two important voices of dissent about this. One came from Orestes, Alexandria's moderate Christian governor who flat out refused, and the other prominent Alexandrian who backed Orestes' refusal came from a pagan, and not just any pagan, The most prominent and outspoken of them all, someone Cyril really hated, and her name was Hypatia. But before we get into Hypatia's story, and that of Christian behavioral pathology, first we're going to take a little break. What you'll be hearing next is a 1917 recording by Van and Schenk of a song called Mulberry Rose.
1: I feel so good that I feel bad I want to laugh but I cry All day long, boss, you act like a horse, but I get lots of fun by and by when I go on Mulberry Street.
2: There you meet your oldie so sweet. Mulberry Rock. understand the, the
1: tango or trot, but I like to dance by
2: Rowdy
1: has done. i tell you this that when we kiss, bumpery bump my poor hearty nose Someday you're gonna be a cop. Then I close up my barber shop, Mary. I'm a very rough and i Most very sweet, nice Italian dragon meat. Some are great to pick a piece, some are nice and for Some are great to pick and tall, some are very, very small. Some are cooked and nice forget, some are no,
2: not yet.
0: Hypatia was a renowned mathematician, philosopher, and pagan, and pagans like her were actually still prominent in the intellectual life of Alexandria in the early 400s AD. But by the time we get to the T&J era, to AD. that way of life would be taking its last gasp. To quote the historian Douglas Boyne, the question of how, when, and why Rome's predominantly pagan society converted to a Christian one is a topic many scholars have pondered with unnecessary bewilderment and undue credulity. In ancient Rome, the decisions of a single emperor could have far-reaching systemic effects. The emperor could marshal an army to enforce his will, had the power of magistrates and courts to prosecute his enemies, and could ask his spokesman to stand at the rostrum to communicate his wishes to the public. The clearest path to implementing a Christian takeover of society was for the emperor to mandate it which is exactly what Theodosius did. Rome wasn't built in a day, and neither was Christianity as its official state religion. Because from 379 to 395 AD, during the 16 years Theodosius was emperor, or co-emperor if you want to get technical about it, For a time, there were two emperors with co-rulers in what was known as the Tetrarchy, which sounds super cool, but is not super relevant for this point, so I'm not going to get into it. Okay, so Theodosius, from 379 to 395 AD, used laws, imperial decrees, a soft touch, veiled threats, and actual physical force to turn Rome into a Christian state. So while Constantine gets a lot of the credit it was actually Theodosius who kicked it into high gear, starting with the Society of the Vestal Virgins. The Vestal Virgins were a centuries-old all-female group whose duties, including the protection of Rome's eternal flame, offered one of the few visible roles for women in Roman society. Theodosius, helped to craft a law that didn't necessarily prevent women from joining or participating in the Vestal Virgins, it just made it virtually impossible for it to continue its mission. In 380 AD, Emperor Theodosius declared that Christianity was the only permissible religion for Roman citizens. By the time Justinian was emperor in 527, he was a Christian on a mission, to stamp out anything that, well, wasn't Christian. Although for reasons unknown, he left the empire's Jews pretty much alone. Justinian no longer allowed Jews to have Christian slaves, but they got off comparatively easy. Procopius details the persecution the newly-minted emperor waged in the years 527 through 529 against the Eunomians, the Sabbatiani, and the Montani, the Manichaeans, who were adherents of a dualist form of Christian belief originating in Persia. Justinian also ordered the destruction of Samaritan synagogues. And, side note, as a kid, one of the stories I'd learned from an animated Bible story series on VHS was the Good Samaritan. Now, I'd always thought the Good Samaritan was just a good guy from Samarita or something, but it turns out Samaritans are actually descended from ancient Israelites and follow a religion that is an offshoot of Judaism, at least depending on who you ask. In addition to the Samaritans, in the Secret History, Procopius also expresses sympathy for the Empire's, get this, astrologers. He notes how they would be whipped, ugh, and then paraded on the backs of camels, ugh, through the city, even though Justinian...
1: ...had no other complaints against them, except that they wished to be wise in the science of the stars.
0: Oh, Justinian man, just let them love the stars. Then, in 529, Justinian dealt the final blow to a group known as the Neoplatonists. The Neoplatonists were the pagan philosopher torchbearers of Platonic thought that, to be honest, I find hard to parse. What is important, though, is that Justinian either shut down the Neoplatonic school in Athens or allowed it to go the way of the Vestal Virgins. Ultimately, ultimately, Paganism's death was long and slow. In large part because people really dug its traditions. Even during the T&J era, the Brumalia, or the Wine Festival of Dionysus, was still celebrated in the late fall. Justinian saw to it, that laws against it happening were renewed. But if paganism's death was long and slow, Christianity's rise was short and rapid by comparison, because sometime in the early 30s AD, Jesus of Nazareth was executed under Emperor Tiberius in Palestine, and his teachings, in just three centuries' time, would be adopted by the very empire whose administration saw fit to kill him. How did they do it? For starters, they networked baby. In the first century AD, Jesus' apostles hit those Roman roads and waters, drawing followers from a wide spectrum of society but making sure, like Joseph Stalin and L. Ron Hubbard, to cultivate the support of rich patrons who hosted them. These small communities of Christians, sometimes no larger than a handful of people, grew in large cities like Thessaloniki, Philippi, Ephesus, and Corinth. I recall many a biblical passage during Mass as a kid opening with, a letter from Paul to the Corinthians. In some of those letters, the apostle Paul was cranky-pants about those early-days Christians still partying with the pagans, but what it also shows is that for a while, people could be, and were, both. As the early community grew, true, there was some backlash, Christians did face persecution, The worst stretch appears to be from 303 to 311 AD, when Rome's Christian citizens were legally required to hand in their Bibles and relinquish church money to the state, or risk losing their civil liberties, which was a huge deal. Fortunately for Rome's Christians, though, the man at the helm of those eight dark years, the Emperor Diocletian, died leading to the enshrinement of Christian tolerance within the empire with what came to be known as the Edict of Milan in 313.
1: We gave to Christians and to all people a free ability to follow the worship practices that each one wished, so that whatever divinity there is in the heavenly seat above may be appeased and made favourable to us and to everyone who had been put under our rule.
0: That little Edict of Milan snippet was a declaration made by Emperor Constantine in 313 AD. And what the Edict of Milan did is it safeguarded the legal status of Christianity by overturning decades of state-sponsored discrimination. But it did so in a way that protected everyone's religious rights. Which sounds pretty cool, right? But was that enough for the empire's Christians? No, no it was not. Christians demanded that the Roman government prevent Jews from rebuilding their temple in Jerusalem, for example. Church leaders also created a moral panic around the evils of pagan society. Their favorite fixation was animal sacrifice. In fact, Christians' obsessive complaints about animal sacrifice would consume the attention of Roman politicians for nearly 300 years. This rhetoric of oppression and intolerance soon made partisan compromise impossible. Christian senators who tried to compromise with their pagan colleagues were labeled apostates. But these fanatical Christians also baffled and annoyed some of the other, more moderate Christians. Even the Christian tutor of Emperor Constantine's children developed a special name for them. They were the Deliri, the Crazies. Now, let's fast forward to one century after the Edict of Milan. Because in March of 415 AD, Cyril, the Patriarch of Alexandria, galvanized his own mob of crazies who pulled Hypatia, the mathematician, Neoplatonic philosopher, woman, pagan, and vocal opponent of expelling the city's Jewish population, from her chariot as she was driving herself home one day, minding her own fucking business. Now, the norm for women at the time was to lead pretty cloistered and quiet lives, but not Hypatia. Unmarried, she could be seen around Alexandria, her unabashedly badass self, driving her own chariot and wearing her signature philosopher's cloak. Hypatia was a very recognizable, local celebrity with a global reputation people actually came from all over to study with her as she was faculty at Alexandria's renowned library, which functioned like a university. Hypatia, though, she made her own mark in the fields of astronomy, music, mathematics, and philosophy. She evidently did important work on conic sections. But on this fateful and horrible, horrible day, the mob of crazies egged on by Cyril pulled Hypatia off of her chariot, dragged her to the cathedral, stripped her naked, beat her, flayed her skin with shards of some kind, and then burned her mangled body on a pyre of brushwood. And Cyril? Well, Cyril did push out the majority of Alexandria's Jewish population, and then would go on to be made a saint, which is super fucked up. Hypatia's violent death, brought on by none other than Saint Cyril, would for many mark this delineation between the classical age of Roman paganism and that of Roman Christendom. Hypatia's death in 415 coincided with paganism's death as well. But I'm not ready to leave Alexandria just yet. We're going to take a quick break, but when I come back, we're going to stay in Alexandria for a bit longer. Not Hypatia's Alexandria, but the Alexandria of one century later, when another woman, our very own Theodora, undergoes a spiritual transformation. Now, what you're about to hear is a 1917 recording of Alma Gluck singing Angels Ever Bright and Fair from Handel's Theodora. clear how long it took Theodora to get to Alexandria from Pentapolis after Hissebulus threw her out, but I'm sure she probably kissed the sweet, sweet ground when she got there. She was still very far from home, but at least in viable civilization. Although the Alexandria Theodora experienced sometime between 517 and 520 AD had As historian James Allen Evans put it, a long-standing reputation for turbulence. Alexandria was now also the de facto capital of monophysitism, and it follows that Timothy, the church's patriarch there, was a monophysite too. One trait that clearly comes across, though, as being of the utmost importance to T&J in the secret history is loyalty. Theodora and Justinian were both fiercely loyal to those that did them a good turn, but violate that loyalty in any way? Oh yeah, no. I'd bet after Theodora's ordeal, her conversion to monophysitism was probably also an expression of an unwavering loyalty to a man, in this case Timothy, and a group, in this case the monophysites, That had been kind to her after a totally harrowing and traumatic experience. And it was a kindness that she never forgot. It was a kindness that literally transformed her. So what was monophysitism exactly? To understand that, we have to go back to the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. And if you're asking yourself, Do we really need another ecumenical council? Unfortunately, the answer is yes. Yes, we do. Monophysites held that Christ had a single nature, and that nature was divine. While he was on earth, he was using his god magic to appear as a man, but he was never actually a man. I'll add here that monophysite Christianity is still around today, And it belongs mainly to what are called the Oriental Orthodox and Eastern Orthodox Churches. The Armenian Apostolic Church, the Coptic Church of Egypt, the Ethiopian Church, the Eritrean Church, the Church of St. Thomas in India, and the Jacobite Syrian Church of Antioch all have their origins in monophysite belief about the nature of Christ that dates back to the Ecumenical Council of Chalcedon in 451. And what happened at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 was that Pope Leo made a pronouncement that Christ was both perfect God and perfect man. Chalcedon means perfect God and perfect. Man. FYI, the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Chalcedon and Protestant denominations, with God a few exceptions like Mormonism. Man. All fall under Chalcedonian beliefs. Chalcedon means perfect God. Unlike those other man. quote unquote heretical beliefs that came prior, monophysitism was already very popular within the empire, particularly in Africa, but also Chalcedon among the elite. Even the Emperor God Anastasius, who I'll talk about more in the Chalcedon next episode, had been an avowed monophysite. Despite Chalcedonian belief Chalcedon being what the church perfect stuck to, God and perfect man. the empire was split between the Monophysites and the Chalcedonians. The, the Monophysites, Monophysites and the Chalcedonians. Chalcedonians. By the time Theodora arrives in Alexandria, oh, uh- Alexandria, that wild, wild wolf. The city was the place persecuted Monophysite clergymen fled to, especially after Emperor Anastasius's death in 518, when believers essentially lost their protector in Constantinople. We don't know much about Theodora's relationship to Timothy, Alexandria's Monophysite patriarch although she appears to have regarded him as a sort of spiritual father figure. Justinian, as I've already mentioned, was a Chalcedonian. However, the scholarship tends to emphasize how Theodora was by far a more passionate and devout monophysite than Justinian was a Chalcedonian. There's even the bold suggestion from Procopius that they kind of got off on debating it in the Senate to fuck with people.
1: Now, first of all, they set the Christians at variance with one another. And by pretending to go opposite ways from each other in the matters under dispute, they succeeded in rendering them all asunder.
0: There is some speculation, which I buy, that their dual allegiances and feigned conflict were in fact a greater strategy for peace throughout the empire because Monophysites always knew they had a fierce ally in her. And Theodora, boy did she show up for her Monophysites. Once Empress, she even turned her area of the Imperial Palace complex into like a Monophysite clubhouse. We're talking about hundreds of them coming to crash over the course of the 530s. And according to one historian, The public rooms were partitioned into cells, where holy men might mortify the flesh and sing hymns of praise. Theodora provided for their needs, and every two or three days she visited them and received their blessings." (laughs) All right, so not a fun clubhouse. (laughs) But the thing is, Justinian would sometimes go with her. So it's not as though he didn't know or share any interest in them. Also, on her deathbed, Theodora was evidently like, Hey baby, will you look after all my monophysites for me? And Justinian was like, Yes baby, I will. And then he did. Needless to say, Theodora's conversion to monophysitism in Alexandria was lifelong and deeply committed. Because Theodora, she didn't do anything half-assed. After her conversion to monophysitism... Theodora then hustles her way to the city of Antioch, which is today the city of Antakya in south-central Turkey, and whoo, by golly, she's almost home. Once she arrives in Antioch, however, Theodora connects with the very circus faction that saved her family from destitution all those years ago, the Blues. And they'd save her again. Here's Procopius.
1: There was a dancing girl, Macedonia by name, belonging to the blue faction in Antioch, a woman who had acquired great influence.
0: So Theodora links up with Macedonia in Antioch. But Macedonia is not your average dancing girl. She is also a spy working for the blues, and she's not just any spy working for the blues – Macedonia just so happens to be one of Justinian's spies. Justinian, who also happens to support the blues, and whose uncle Justin also just so happens to be emperor at the time. Don't worry, I'll get into Justinian's background and trajectory next episode. But for now, what's important, is that Macedonia gets her girl Theodora some work, which puts Theodora in Justinian's orbit. There's zero details about exactly how Theodora's transition from Justinian's spy in Antioch to his girlfriend in Constantinople, occurred. Which sucks, because that's absolutely the kind of romantic honey I live for. Nevertheless, I've thought about this interlude in their story a lot. Like, did Theodora spy letters to Justinian turn flirty? Or vice versa? Who made the first move? I'll conjecture here, but I think... I think that if they'd had a meet-cute back in Constantinople, it was probably during the height of Theodora's stardom. Maybe Justinian had seen one of her performances. Maybe they'd even met or been introduced. If so, it was definitely never more involved than that, and my hunch is that it probably did not go very far. The most likely scenario is that the two knew of each other. Justinian would have heard her name in connection with her stage career, and from what Procopius relays about her reputation, both on stage and off, Theodora definitely gave the people of Constantinople something to talk about. I mean, doubtful Justinian would have missed it. I think there's also a decent chance she had known for a while who he was, too. Theodora was certainly intelligent and enterprising enough to observe his ascendant career even from a distance, even if his was nothing more than a name tossed around. She'd attached herself to Hezzebulus, so she had her elite connections and aspirations when it came to hitching her raft to a man with power i.e. a man, who could get her out of theatrical life. So when Theodora reappears in Antioch and is recruited into his spy network, I imagine Justinian was like,
1: Oh, it's her.
0: And then I think the spy letters got flirty, or at least I fucking hope so. And I think they grew to understand pretty quickly with this epistolary spy romance that they were each other's person. Well, before she returned to Constantinople, where they would finally experience each other I R L. And I also suspect that that went. Because they were each smart, intensely loyal, and they were never more loyal to anyone than they were to each other. I mean, I think one of the biggest tells is that nowhere in the secret history. Does Procopius present a single rumor or allegation of marital infidelity on either of their parts? And as we'll soon see, he totally would have, if he could have. T and J had each other's backs, and they were also ambitious as fuck. Theodora wanted to rise as far above her station as she could get, and Justinian could catapult her. Justinian seems to have seen right past her pariah status, and more than that, he was proud of her, and proud to be with her. For a man of Justinian's position to be so loud and so committed to a woman whose background is sex work, I mean, as a woman sitting here in the 21st century, that's not unconventional. That's fucking radical which makes what Procopius says in the secret history sound depressingly contemporary.
1: So Theodora, born and nurtured and educated in the manner I have described, came to the dignity of Empress without having been impeded by any obstacle. For not even a thought that he was doing an outrageous thing entered the mind of the man who married her, though he might have taken his choice of the whole Roman Empire and have married that woman who, Of all the women in the world, was in the highest degree both well born and blessed with a nurture sheltered from the public eye. A woman who had not been unpractised in modesty and had dwelt with chastity, who was not only surpassingly beautiful but also still a maid and, as the expression runs, erect of breast. But he did not.
0: It sort of speaks volumes that Justinian hadn't married one of these sheltered, erect of breast, ew, Procopius, noble women already. Justinian was in his early 30s by the time he and Theodora got together. So it's almost as though he was waiting for a spouse with a very particular set of qualities to come along, and Theodora had them smart, funny, sexy, resilient. That was what mattered, and that was it. Then they were ready to help each other take on the world, literally. Now, it should be noted that Theodora's odyssey across North Africa and the Levant had her seeing and experiencing way more of the empire she would soon co rule than her husband, who was a notorious homebody. Seriously, Notwithstanding his leaving as a young man, the Illyrian village of his birth, Justinian left Constantinople, like, twice in his whole life. But for now, we leave them here. I like to imagine T and J together, boyfriend and girlfriend, intertwined in bed, in some swanky-ass room in the pals' complex. And laughing at some post coital joke Theodora made. She's not only survived her ordeal, but she's back home, safe, in love, no longer an actress, but with a good and powerful man who loves her and is taking her along with him for this ride. She was determined to have this kind of life, she busted her ass for it, getting dragged down and humiliated in the process. But fuck you, Hasebelus, she got it. And the best is yet to come. Just Research, scripting, narration, and editing for this episode were all done by me, Christine Laskowski. Scoring and musical arrangements for t were also written and performed by me in collaboration with the inimitable Jack Butler. The T&J logo was designed by Meredith Montgomery. Procopius of Caesarea was voiced by Michael de la Bedouir, Emperor Constantine by Ralph Weber, and Justinian by Oliver Zatgau. Special thanks to David Parnell for his notes and feedback. Additional sources for the episode are available in the show notes. If you liked what you've heard, spread the word and leave a nice note. In the review section... Wherever you're getting your podcasts, follow and donate on Patreon. That's patreon.com/slash T A N D J P O D C A S T. It'll really help me keep the show going and give you access to all upcoming TNJ episodes, in addition to other objectively delectable perks. Now, enjoy the outro because I wrote it just for you. We'll feel about the Aryan,
2: and Barbarian will feel about the Aryan, and Barbarian will feel about the Aryan, and Barbarian Woah, 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 Yes, it was the 300s A.D. A young missionary was proselytizing, and then he thought, you know, what really helped me get the message across to the Goths about Christianity—a Bible for the tribal based on the creed Twala, from Brimini. to put the Aryan in Twala. Barbarian. to put the Aryan in Twala. Barbarian. to put the Aryan in Twala. Barbarian. Whoa, 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 He helped create a written language Ooh. for the Gauls. And Bulgaria <laughs> was <laughs> the area where oh. Little Wolf first taught. In Latin letter forms in a couple of rooms. We know the words Dor and Dwala, and you can check oh. them out in Uppsala. We'll feed a put the aryan in Barbarian. We'll feed put the Aryan in Barbarian. We'll feed put the Aryan in Barbarian. We'll the Arian, barbarian. We'll the Arian, barbarian. Whoa, 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 We'll feed a put the Aryan. And barbarian will feel to put the Aryan. And barbarian will feel to put the Aryan. And barbarian, woah, wo woah, woah.